people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here. This is Yearfolk Radio, Restoration Hour, September 24th, 2022. And tonight I'm going to finish what uh, actually I started several months ago. I think it was August 20th that I did the second installment of this reading of the oldest letters in the world by Mrs. Sidney Bristow, which is a detailed explanation of the Amarna letters, which is correspondence between several different Egyptian pharaohs, primarily Akhenaten and Amenhotep IV, but I think also even Amenhotep III, and uh, how the correspondence from the Canaanite regional leaders to the Egyptian heads of state were complaining about <clears throat> the invasion of the Habiru, namely the Israelites, because those Canaanite kings didn't know who exactly the Habiru were. They didn't know they were Israelites because they had just spent 40 years in the wilderness uh, waiting around to invade Canaan land. And when they finally did, it was a total surprise to the Canaanite peoples, the various tribes of the Canaanites. And so Mrs. Sidney Bristow has done an outstanding job of sorting all this out so that she, better than any other uh, writer on this topic, and this is like the early 1930s, has understood what was going on here, and because she correctly places the Israelites as the attackers and not other tribes and not other kings, which other Egyptologists and archaeologists have falsely ascribed, namely being uh, various kings of, let's say, the Hittites and uh, and others that uh, really are not the ones invading Canaan land at this time. <clears throat> also, for example, we left off on page 62, which was chapter 11, in which she talks about the king of the Sidonians, of the Phoenicians, who mistakes the invaders for Hittites because uh, this king of the Sidonians really isn't clear as to who's invading from the north, uh, the Hittites being the ones in the north. However, she states that it was actually Dusrata who was the king of the Mitanni and is falsely assumed to be the king of the Hittites by the by the Sidonians as being the attacker. So this King Dusrata that 
Mrs. Sidney Bristow constantly alludes to doesn't seem to be in the consciousness of the other authors who wrote about the Amarna letters. So, I put a link in the chat room. I found a Internet Archive copy of this outstanding book, The Oldest Letters in the World, by Mrs. Sidney Bristow. And you can open this up and read along. I'm now going to be reading on page 63, but I'll be reading from the print book because the uh, Internet Archive version here is somewhat difficult to read. And it looks like it's a a verbatim copy of the book that I have and uh, with a lot of, how should I put it, uh, not typos, but uh, extraneous stuff on the pages that the photocopy has picked it all up and I think it has made it look worse. But hold on, my my sound just uh, suddenly dropped down as I'm seeing here. Let me make sure my sound is up to snuff uh, before we proceed. And I'm going to have to go into my uh, sound settings here. We had problems this morning as to the the show that uh, Dan and I did. So, uh, so sorry for the delay. I'm going to have to uh, double-check all my settings and make sure my master volume is correct. Because I just had a, a pop-up showing me that the uh, sound was only like 74%. But uh, I'm not seeing any problems with the headset here and and that's on playback it's it's showing that uh, we should be good to go so let me just check the uh, mixing board okay that's showing uh, good it's showing good volume and uh, one more thing to check here which is the volume on but the actual streamer and that's showing good volume too, so I'm hoping everything will be uh, up to snuff for this show. So thanks for joining me, and hope to complete the reading of the entire book here, The Oldest Letters in the World, by Mrs. Sidney Bristow, and we'll have an audiobook version of it here, right here on Eurofolk Radio. So let's pick it up from page 63, This is chapter 12 and is entitled False Witnesses. False Witnesses. Okay. Here we go. This information, as I just said, uh, in chapter 11, Mrs. Sidney Bristow was explaining that the king of the Sidonians was confused about exactly who was invading. And uh, she insists that it was Dizrata of the Mitanni. And he also apparently had ruled over, apparently ruled over the Hittites as well, having them conquered, conquered them earlier. And of course, the, uh, the various kings of the Canaanite tribes would not have been aware 
of the fact that they were being invaded by both Israelites and by Duzrata, the king of Mitanni. And the reason why Duzrata would be attacking them is because he was actually allied with the Israelites. And also the Mitanni were allied with the Egyptians because Duzrata had provided not, not only his daughter to one of the Egyptian kings as a wife, but also his own sister to one of the Egyptian kings as a wife. So Duzrata and, and the problem with, that the Canaanites were having was that the Egyptian kings were not protecting them from these invaders. This is uh, virtually all of the letters convey this that the Canaanite chieftains were flabbergasted as to why the Egyptians were not providing any support militarily against the invaders. Against the invaders, because these Canaanite cities and city states were tributary to the Egyptians. So what these Canaanite chieftains did not realize was that 40 years before under Moses during the Exodus the Egyptian military had been virtually wiped out and the two subsequent kings including King Tut King King Adnan, had adopted monotheism they didn't worship Yahweh from what I can uh, determine but they had adopted a form of monotheism based on their belief that the God of Moses was more powerful than the the various gods of the Egyptian pantheon, which were the gods of the priests. So there was strife between the priests, the old-fashioned priests who were pagans and polytheists, versus the latter two or three kings after Moses, who uh, understood that Yahweh was more powerful than the gods of Egypt. So this is uh, basically the situation that obtained in the latter portions of this document here. So continuing with chapter 12, False Witnesses, and I quote, This information clashes with Dusrata's letters, and, and this is the king of the Phoenicians assuming that his country was being attacked by Hittites which was a mistake by the king of the Phoenicians or the Sidonians. And this is what she's referring to. This information clashes with Dusrata's letters with the most convincing part of Ribaldi's evidence. Ribaldi is the king of Sidon at this point, which proves that Dusrata was allied with the people called Hittites and also, as we have seen, with the Bible records. And I would say that, that Dusrata probably had conquered the Hittites at least temporarily at this point in time. And the, they had them in subjection also. Continuing, it is found upon the cuneiform tablets which have been excavated at Bogaz Kui in Cappadocia. It is largely upon the evidence of those tablets that the theory of the Hittite Empire has been built up. Their evidence seems to be preferred by Dr. Hall and other authorities to that of the Amarna tablets. Ignoring Dusrata's claim to have conquered the Hittites, Dr. Hall tells us that the Hittites destroyed Dusrata's country during that king's lifetime 
about the time of the conquest of Palestine by the Israelites, page 400, and that after Dizrata's death, Subililiuma, king of the Hittites, eh, I said that without a problem. I was having trouble pronouncing that name. Subililiuma, Subililiuma, king of the Hittites, took possession of the whole of Mitanni, which is said to have been in a state of anarchy at that time. So the other Egyptologists dispute what Mrs. Sidney Bristow is saying here, and that Dusrata was not as powerful or even allied with the Egyptians as clearly the evidence she brings dictates. Continuing. This information is given by the Bogaz Kui documents. I hope to prove it false. Dr. Hall quotes the following passage from the Bogaz Kui tablets, and Kui is spelled K-E-U-I-E, the Bogaz Kui tablets, in which passage Sibililiuma claims to have taken possession of Mitanni after Dusrata's death. The passage runs, quote, Till now had the son, Subiliuliuma, the great king, the noble king of Kati, or the Hatti, the Hittites, beloved of Teshub, great king, refrained from crossing the Euphrates, and had taken neither taxes nor tribute from the land of Mitanni, but when the great king saw the desolation of the land of Mitanni, he sent men, he sent men of the palace, oxen, sheep, and horses, for the men of Kani Mitannians were in misery. Shutatara and his nobles endeavored to slay Matiuza, Matiuaza, the son of the king, but he fled and came to the son, S-U-N, Sibiliuliuma, the great king. The great king spake, Teshub had decided his right for him, since I now take Matiuza, Matiuaza, the son of King Dusrata, by the hand, and set him upon his throne. In order that the land of Mitanni, the great land, may not disappear, hath the great king Sibilu Liuma summoned it to life for the sake of his daughter. For Matiuaza, the son of Dusrata, have I taken by the hand, and have given him my daughter to wife, unquote. This is the translation by Hall, page 351. Mrs. Bristow now resumes her story. Dr. Hall conjectures about Sibiluliuma, quote, with a fine touch of contempt, not for the sake of the rightful King Dusrata's son, but for that of his daughter to whom he now married him. The Hittite Bismarck entered Mitanni and placed Mariuaza on the throne of Dusrata as his son-in-law and vassal. She continues, My inference from the Amarna letters is that Dr. Hall's Hittite Bismarck, Sibilu Liuma, was nothing more than a name invented by Dusrata and made use of after his death by the priests who concocted the story of Sibilu Liuma's acquisition of Mitanni. Well, that's interesting. He, he made up a fictitious character <laughs> to, to fool the Hittites, to fool the Canaanites? As before remarked, a striking difference exists between Bogaz Kui documents and the Amarna tablets. Instead of being diplomatic correspondents like the Amarna letters, they are the work of priests 
had shared many peculiarities with the Egyptian priestly inscriptions, a lot of which were doctored and phony. The Hittite states, as they are called, of which the Bogaz Kui documents are supposed to be the archives, are said to have had their capital at Bogaz Kui, quote, a great city of the Hatti in northern Cappadocia, Encyclopedia Britannica, volume 13, page 538. If, as Professor Sace seems to think, from the Hittite inscriptions, Kasi, over which Dusrata ruled, was Cappadocia in Asia Minor, and as there is evidence to show that he ruled over Cilicia as well, it seems probable that Bogaz Kui was one of Dusrata's cities, and not a city of the Hittites at this time. According to Professor Sace, Sociology of Biblical Archaeology, or Society of Biblical Archaeology, 1905, those, quote, Hittite states, unquote, were a colony of priests. He writes, quote, The Hittite states were theocratic, the king being also high priest, and both he and his people took names from the supreme deity, the Sandian, S-A-N-D-I-A-N. Never heard of this group. Sandes, S-A-N-D-E-S, is symbolized by the... It sounds Indian. <laughs> it sounds Indian to me. Indo-Aryan. Sandes is symbolized by the serpent, unquote. And there's a lot of serpent worship in India, folks. A lot of it. Okay, and of course, all over the area. Because they basically worship Cain. He describes the revolting nature of their so-called religion in which children were sacrificed to their gods, says Kadesh and Naphtali, or Naphtali. I'm not sure what this reference is here. Anyway, and writes, quote, Their progress through Asia Minor was characterized by the rise of priestly cities and the growth of a class of armed priestesses. Whoa! The entire population ministered to the divinity to whom the city was dedicated. I wonder if this this type of thing gave uh, rise to the legend of the Amazons, right? Women warriors. Yeah, let the women do the fighting for a change. <laughs> okay. So, where was I? Armed priestesses. The entire population ministered to the divinity to whom the city was dedicated. The sanctuary of the deity stood in the center and the chief authority was wielded by a high priest. If a king existed at all, he came in course of time to fill a merely subordinate position. Again, we're quoting, this uh, This is Professor Sace. The Hittite priests on the days of festival cut their arms and scourged themselves in honor of their deities. Ah, this is why the Bible tells us not to do that, because that is a Baal worship type of activity. Such actions remind us of those priests of Baal who cut themselves after their manner with knives and lances till the blood gushed out of them. Unquote. Those priests of Baal, worshippers of the serpent and of another deity represented by an ass's head, left behind them the inscriptions and pictures from which has been evolved the theory of a great Hittite empire. 
So, Mrs. Bristow doubts that scholarship has really identified properly the Hittites. I'm sure the Hittites existed, but I think she's suggesting here that they were never as huge an empire as everyone else seems to think. Those priests of Baal, worshippers of the serpent and of another deity represented by the ass's head. That their testimony is as unreliable as that of the Egyptian priests, I hope to prove by showing that no Hittite king named Sibaluliuma existed at the end of the 18th dynasty, and that the information given about him upon the Bogaz Kui tablets must therefore have been entirely invented by them. Well, the priests have been known to invent stuff, right? In that priest-ridden country, <laughs> we have a priest-ridden country today. It's Judeo-Christian, um, Judeo-priest-ridden country. Once, uh, let me start again. In that priest-ridden country, priest-infested country, once the kingdom of Dusrata and his ancestors before him, almost all trace of the splendid age which had preceded them was, I firmly believe, wiped out by the priests. Professor Sais shows that the priests of Syria and Egypt were in communication with one another by saying, quote, The Hittites, who tell us they were all priests, carried the time-worn civilizations of Babylonia and Egypt to the furthest boundary of Asia, unquote. Unless the priests of Syria, the so-called Hittites, had been in communication with the priests of those other countries, they could not have done this. Nor could the Hittite hieroglyphics have been inspired by the Egyptian hieroglyphics, as Professor says they were. Professor Sais says they were, from his book The Hittites, page 124. That priestcraft existed in Dusrata's country in his time is shown by the fact that he invokes the gods Teshub, T-E-S-H-U-B, Teshub, and Amen, obviously the Egyptian god, Amen. Probably like King Solomon, who in his old age followed Ashtoreth and Milcom, quote, the abomination of the Amorites, unquote. Dusrata had partly forgotten the religion of his fathers, although he may still have been enough influenced by it to sympathize with Amenhotep's plans and to help the Israelites to conquer Palestine, as the tablets prove that he did. Okay, so Dusrata was an Aramean. From what I can gather here, he was an Aramean and would have been a, a racial kinsman of the Israelites. But there was very little connection between the what are later called the Syrians with the Israelites for 400 years because they were all captive in Egypt for all that time. Let's continue. It can easily be imagined how unpopular Amenhotep's and Dusrata's policy in helping on Joshua's conquest of Palestine must have been with the priests of both countries. That a conspiracy existed between the Aramean and Egyptian priests against the kings who helped the Israelites to conquer Palestine, that those kings were assassinated and false reports about them circulated by the priests who from that time manufactured Egyptian and Syrian history is my firm conviction. Let me repeat this because this is kind of complicated what she's arguing here. So 
to repeat the beginning of this paragraph on page 66, if you're following along with the online version of this book. It can easily be imagined how unpopular Amenhotep's and Dusrata's policy in helping on Joshua's conquest of Palestine must have been with the priests of both countries. That a conspiracy existed between the Aramean and Egyptian priests against the kings who helped the Israelites to conquer Palestine, that those kings were assassinated and false reports about them circulated by the priests who from that time manufactured Egyptian and Syrian history is my firm conviction. So we know that the Egyptian priests fabricated history and had tried to destroy all the records of Akhenaten, Amenhotep IV, and possibly even Amenhotep III, because they had been practicing a monotheistic religion. And that was the god Aten instead of the god Amen. The Amarna tablets, continuing with uh, Mrs. Sidney Bristow here, the Amarna tablets show that the Abdeshera was murdered. Okay, and Abdeshera is the personage that the Phoenician and other Canaanite kings accused of being their invader, the main invader at this point in time. Okay, but Abdeshera, we have concluded, were the Israelites. So Abdeshera is more than likely Joshua. Repeat this. The Amarna letters show that Abdeshera was murdered. So again, we probably have confusion between these various kings that are attacking the Canaanite people. Okay, so they're confusing Abdeshera, which is Joshua, with the king of the Arameans. But let's continue. As it is, Rabadi, again, he is the king of the Sidonians, who tells Amenhotep this, and who, as we have seen, mixes up Abdeshera with Duzrada, it may well have been Duzrada's murder, which he refers to. In one letter, Rabadi says that Abdeshera is sick unto death. And in another letter, he says that Abdeshera has been killed. So this title, Abdeshera, is a Canaanite reference to the invaders, which we have concluded in parts 1 and 2 is actually Joshua, but the Canaanite people don't know. And they don't know that, that Duzrada was actually assisting the Israelites in these attacks, he being far north. In one letter... Yeah, he's sick unto death. So that can't be Joshua. It has to be Dizrata. Probably this means that Dizrata had been poisoned, a supposition which is supported by the fact that upon the Bogaz Kui tablets, Dizrata is said to have been murdered. The Amenhotep IV, that Amenhotep IV, was also murdered, and his city destroyed by the priest is strongly suggested by the following statements. Sir, Sir Ernest Budge writes, quote, 25 years after the death of Amenhotep IV, Tel El Amarna was deserted. The buildings fell into decay. The god Amen and his priests had conquered Aten, Amenhotep's supposed object of worship, and Egyptian art once again put on its shackles of conventionality in obedience to their behests, unquote. Another Egyptologist, Weigel, in a book called Akhenaten, page 224, writes, quote, Akhenaten, who is Amenhotep IV, 
could no longer stave off the impending crash, and from all sides there gathered the forces which were to overwhelm him. The plotting and scheming of the priests of Amman showed signs of com- coming to a successful issue. The anger of the priesthoods of the other gods of Egypt hung over the palace like some menacing storm cloud. <laughs> right, and we're in the same situation today. We have Yahweh and the rest of the world has other gods. And on page 226 he writes, quote, History tells us only that, simultaneously with the fall of his empire, Amenhotep died, unquote. On another page he writes, page 235, quote, The abandonment of the city of the horizon, that's Tel El Amarna, appears to have been carried out in haste, and one may suppose that events shaped themselves so as to place in the hands of the reactionary party, which would be the old priests, the power to demand a sudden and instant evacuation of Akhenaten's city. The excavations of the Egyptian Exploration Society have revealed the bones of Akhenaten's dogs in the royal kennels, as though these unfortunate animals had been left to starve when the court marched away. The dead oxen have also been found in the sheds of the king's farm, lying where they were abandoned. The city itself shows other signs of having been suddenly left to its fate, and it was not long before the palaces and uh, the villas became the home of the jackals and the owls, while the temples were partly pulled down to provide stone for other works, unquote. So, these tell El Amarna letters. These Amarna letters are really probably the best historical documentation we have of this era from the Exodus to the invasion of Canaan land by Joshua and the Israelites. This is really outstanding information and unfortunately most Egyptologists have not corrected all this uh, understood all this information correctly but Mrs. Sidney Bristow has. Let's continue on page 67. The malicious priests who handed down Amenhotep upon the monuments as a deformed imbecile, right? Yeah, he's depicted as a a physically deformed person who described him, although his ideals resembled those of Christianity, as, quote, that criminal of Akhenaten, unquote, and who desecrated his tomb may well be suspected of having murdered him and his family and wrecked his city, just like they murdered the Tsar. The way in which the Egyptian priests of former days treated the memory of the Hebrew or Aramean princes, the Hyksos kings, she equates these people with the Hyksos kings, who had conquered Egypt about 700 years before Dusrata's time, proves how they invented history. Yeah, well, certainly the priests were inventing history, and they wanted to erase the memory of Akhenaten and those kings subsequent to the Exodus. Absurd names that no living man would have owned, such as Saladis, meaning many lies, (laughs) Beon, B-E-O-N, meaning filthy fellow. Oh, yeah. Any uh, emperor would name himself such. And Apachnas, meaning bond slave, were applied to the greatest Hyksos ruler by the priests. Quote, uh, quote, I'm sorry, footnote here. 
identify I identify this ruler with Shem in the man who built the great pyramid oh okay but how many years before this did she say 700 years she may be onto something here because I have always and most people identify the Hyksos with Canaanites in the far southwest of what we today call Edom who were also shepherds so if she's right about this it would be very very interesting so I'll see if, uh, if I can get a copy of this book uh, The Man Who Built the Great Pyramid let's continue okay so the priests whoever the Hyksos were these priests would want to desecrate their memory Dr. Hall remarks, quote, The Egyptians spoke slightingly of their Hyksos conquerors as mere shepherds, Bedouins of the desert. But there is little doubt that they were mainly civilized Syrians. Okay, very interesting. Unquote, page 212. Until now, writers have unanimously described the Hyksos as barbarians. Quote, The Barbaric Invaders of Egypt, Times History, Volume 1, page 126. Evidently following the Egyptian priestly historian of about 150 B.C., who calls the Hyksos an ignoble race. That would be Mithino, sorry, Menetho. Yeah, it's Menetho. That an ignoble race or even mere shepherds should have practiced arithmetic, <laughs> applied mathematics, astronomy, and naturalism in art, as the Hyksos are known to have done, that they should have also introduced a chariot into Egypt, and that they should have conquered Egypt without a battle, as Manetho naively remarks that they did, is incredible. Wow. So, Mrs. Sidney uh, Bristow, I think, is onto something here that it may have been Shem, it may have been other Aramaeans, it may have been other Shemites. The Hyksos monuments, the finest Egyptian works of art, were willfully broken up as Professor Petrie tells us, Tanis, T-A-N-I-S, thrown down wells, the features altered, the names erased, evidently in the hope of hiding from future generations the fact that under the Hebrew princes from Syria, Egypt had enjoyed its golden age. Very interesting. Considering that the Hyksos are said by Manetho to have closed the temples of the Egyptian gods and to have forbidden their worship, their religion was evidently that of the Hebrews, the reason why the priests hated them and tried to obliterate all traces of their rule in Egypt is obvious. I definitely have to get that book by Mrs. Sidney, The Man Who Built the Great Period. I don't know if this is a book or an article. I'll have to search for that. So let's continue. This is very interesting information. It totally conflicts with all the other information, and there's been debate among scholars as who the Hyksos were, who the heck they were, right? <laughs> who the heck the Hyksos were, like the Hakawi Indians, where the heck are we? In the same way, ah, right, in the same way, traces of the reigns of the three so-called heretic kings, Time History, Volume One, page one thirty-nine. Tutmos the fourth, Amenhotep the third, and his son were wiped out as far as possible by the priests. 
their names were omitted from several priestly lists of the kings of Egypt, that the priests had invented those names as well as those of the Hyksos kings, and in the same malicious and lying spirit is certain. That Amenhotep III is called Nemuria, and his son Amenhotep IV is called Nafiria by Dusrata, while Amenhotep III calls himself Nemuria in writing to Dusrata, proves that those were their, their real names. The name Amenhotep was probably unknown to the three heretic kings. It would have been the last name they would have chosen. According to Egyptologists, Amenhotep III and his Mitannian wife turned against the worship and the priests of Amen. They would not have called their son Amenhotep, nor is the so-called, so what would Amenhotep mean? Maybe she gets into this. That would be an important point. They would not have called their son Amenhotep, nor is the so-called the IV likely to have called his son Amenhotep. Well, if they're worshipping the god Aten, they wouldn't have called themselves after Amen, that's for sure. Amenhotep by that name, for it is now admitted that he too had turned against Amen and the priests of Amen, citing Weigal in the book Akhenaten, page 18. It had also married a Hebrew princess from Mitanni. According to the Times history, Egypt passed into the power of the priests after the time of the Ramesside kings, that's R-E-M-E-S-S-I-D-E, Ramesside kings. I contend that it did so at the end of Amenhotep IV's reign, when the priests evidently began their work of destruction. A remark of Dr. Hall's supports this contention. He says that the tomb of Tutmose IV was violated as early as the, quote, the confusion of Akhenaten's reign. At that time, therefore, the priests were already in power. Dr. Hall writes, quote, The royal mummies had all been removed in the time of the priest kings, either to the pit near Deir el-Bari, or to the tomb of Amenhotep II. He also says that the body found in Queen T's tomb, and this is spelled T-I-I, Queen T's tomb was not hers. He writes, quote, the operation of removal was, however, effective in such haste and confusion that although T's, oh, Catalphic, <laughs> Catafalc, C-T-A, sorry, C-A-T-A-F-A-L-Q-U-E, Catafalc, which must be some kind of, maybe it's the, the uh, uh, casket, Catafalc, dedicated to her by Akhenaten, Amenhotep IV, and her golden diadem were placed in the tomb. Her body was either left behind at Tel El Armana or buried elsewhere. So I, have, I can't imagine what the word catafalque <laughs> means, okay? But something that was left behind in her tomb. Maybe a crown? Dr. Hall seems to think that all this was done by someone named Tutankhamun, the supposed second successor and son-in-law of Amenhotep IV, in good faith and reverence. Well, no, you desecrate a grave in, in good faith and reverence. <laughs> it is surely easier to see in this summary treatment of, of Great Queen T's remains the, quote, fury of the priests of Amen, unquote, remarked upon elsewhere by Dr. Hall, 
with everything and everyone connected with the heretic kings. The soldiers and statesmen who, as Dr. Hall says, saw with bitterness the work of a dynasty abandoned and thrown away at the caprice of a boy, unquote, were probably all priests. So this is the priest's version of the history. In, in the Egyptian inscriptions, we find high priests calling themselves the commander-in-chief of the army, quoted by Breasted, volume 4, page 318. It was undoubtedly into the hands of the priests that the government of Egypt had passed at the time of Amenhotep the fourth death. Now, very interesting. The same thing happened to the kings of Judah just before the days of Yahshua when the Pharisees took control of the country. Although the Herodians were actually the nominal kings, it was obvious that the Pharisees were running the country and it was, how should I put it, it was dangerous for anybody to oppose the will of the Pharisees in those days, okay? Jeffrey says, a catafalque is like an altar upon which the dead is mourned for a time, okay? So there was an altar in the tomb of Queen T. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. All right, so let's continue. This is, uh, again, I can't praise this book enough. Uh, and, and Mrs. Cindy Bristow, who was absolutely right about Cain in her book, Sargon the Magnificent, which we did. We did an entire series on that book, Michael and I, on bloodlines. So, let's continue here. This is really good stuff. Chapter 13. Copies, counterfeits, and forgeries. The likeness between the Egyptian priestly records and those of Bogaz Kui is unquestionable. Describing art and literature in the period succeeding the 18th dynasty, when, as we have seen, all power had passed into the hands of the Egyptian priests, the Times History says, quote, Everything is a copy and is carefully worked out from a fixed model. It has often been remarked how greatly the historical value of the reports has suffered through this, unquote. Undoubted copies are also appearing in the Bogaz Kui documents. Those remarkable counterparts, as Professor Weber calls them, found in them of historical information given by the Amarna tablets, probably many years before, are enough to discredit anything recorded in those documents. So somebody made copies of those documents and apparently stated they were of Hittite origin instead. The unique position of Queen T, for instance, now it's spelled T-H-I instead of T-I-I, for instance, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I have to get a drink. The unique position of Queen T, for, for instance, travestied as it probably was by the Egyptian priest in the fabulous story of Queen Hatshepsut, for which there is only priestly authority, is attributed in the Bogaz Kui documents to a Hittite queen, Pudu Hepa, whose name seems like a character of that of Desrata's daughter, Tadukipa. Pudu Hepa is said to have been queen regent in Mitanni as Queen T. Another different spelling. 
T-E-I-E, had been in Egypt, and just as Queen T had received, as we know from the Amarna tablets, a letter from Dusrata soon after her husband's death, Pudahepa is said to have received a letter from Ramesses II after her husband's death. Okay, so it's pretty evident, and just as the Jews do today, <laughs> they rewrite history. Just as Queen T is shown in the Amarna letters to have corresponded with Dusrata's wife, so in the Mogaz Kui documents, Queen Puduhepa is said to have written to the wife of Ramesses. These palpable imitations commented upon by the German writers helped to disqualify the evidence of the Bogaz Kui documents. While the capacity of the Egyptian priests for invention may be gauged in many ways, for instance, in the story of Ramesses the Great, as recorded upon the wall of the Ramesseum, his so-called funerary temple, described by Dr. Hall as, quote, a gigantic usurpation erected apparently with the stones of the splendid funerary temple of Amenhotep III. Unquote. Amenhotep's funerary temple had then been wantonly demolished, and obviously by the priests. Dr. Hall writes again, quote, The name of Ramesses II bulks largely in Egypt. It is impossible to get away from it for long. Hardly a temple but has been restored or otherwise spoiled by him, hardly a statue of a preceding king that has not been partially or wholly usurped by him, unquote. I think Hall is falsely attributing desecration to Ramesses, where Mississippi Bristow is saying, no, this is done by the, by the priests. And, quote, he has until lately been commonly given an honorific title which may be fitly be conceded to Tutmosis III, but is in no way deserved by Ramesses II. She continues, Sir Ernest Budge writes in the British Museum catalog that, quote, Ramesses frequently usurped the works of his predecessors and ascribed his own name on the statues which he did not make, unquote. As the priests of that time were, as it is expressed, quote, the sacred sculptors, draftsmen, and masons, unquote, all those destructions and usurpations must have been their handiwork. They could therefore put any inscriptions they chose upon the monuments of the preceding kings. As the Jews like to do today. My perhaps startling theory that the Ramesside kings were only priestly inventions, as were also the three intervening kings between Amenhotep IV and the first Ramesses, whose reigns are crammed into eight years by Professor Breasted, and that the name Ramesses was only a copy of that, of that of the city Ramesses, which had, according to the Bible, existed at least 500 years before Ramesses is said to have lived, cannot be discussed here. Okay, so this gives an indication of why there is such a discrepancy between the Egyptian king lists of the secular authors and biblical history. This offers a partial explanation. So, in fact, people have stated that Manetho made a lot of these kings' names up, which is also possible. So, granting the fact that Manetho and these pagan priests were inventing history, you really, <laughs> you really have to carefully 
analyze what they have actually written and compare it to actual history and to the Bible. Okay, very good points here. So I think that uh, Bristow is absolutely correct. A king who, ha- who, as the inscriptions say, overcame single-handed an enemy described as multitudinous as the sand, <laughs> covering mountains and valleys like grasshoppers for their number, the serpent in whose diadem spat fire in the face of his enemies and who are said to have thrown themselves down on the ground from fear for yeah, from fear of Ramesses who picked them up one by one only to throw them into the river Orontes like crocodiles is surely too wonderful to be believed in as implicitly as Ramses the Great has been. Well, this, uh, this is definitely serpent worship here, folks. Serpent worship, which we know comes from Cain. Ramesses has been called the Great Forger. Is it not possible that he was himself one of the priest's forgeries? <laughs> Dr. Wright says, quote, The Reverend T.K. Chain, C-H-E-Y-N-E, Chain, who places the inscriptions of Egypt before the Bible records in veracity, receives as authentic this representation of the battle. Oh, really? Yeah, and Jeffrey says, if you remember how JFK was placed in the rotunda for mourners to pass by, you saw you saw a catafalque. <laughs> a catafalque. Yeah, that, that was, man, talk about a fictitious rendering of the murder and, of course, blaming uh, Lee Harvey Oswald instead of the true assassins, uh, where there, there were several assassins. All, many shots were fired from different directions. And, uh, and Lee Harvey Oswald was the furthest one away with a $35 rifle <laughs> that couldn't hit the broad side of a barred door. So again, history is being rewritten for us by the Jews. Don't you know? Let's continue. So he takes this, uh, this fairy tale of, of serpents like grasshoppers as, as the real deal. Wow. Okay. Ramesses, he says, was indeed victorious, but he owed his life and consequently his victory to his personal bravery and his childlike faith in his God. Okay, that's his opinion. Dr. Wright remarks, quote, I am inclined to agree with Brooks Bay. Brooks Bay. Is that German or Welsh? B-R-U-G-S-C-H. Brooks Bay, B-E-Y, that Ramesses came out of the battle a doubtful conqueror. <laughs> I am the more inclined to think so because an immediate peace followed the battle, unquote, from the book Empire of the Hittites, page 109. The German professor Meyer doubts Ramesses' veracity. He says, quote, it was only boasting when Ramesses gave long lists of conquered people and towns in his temple inscriptions. It can at once be seen that is, it is no historical document. Unquote. So we have the secular historians disagreeing among themselves, which is typical. Professor Breston also suspects the reliability of some of the priestly inscriptions. 
He says that the account of Queen Hatshepsut's coronation is taken verbatim from the account of Amenhotep III's coronation and, quote, deserves no more credence than the geographical list of Ramesses III at Medinet Habu, which have been copied from the lists of the 18th and 19th dynasties. He writes, quote, It is clear that this entire coronation of Hatshepsut, like the supernatural birth, is an artificial creation, a fiction of later origin. As such, it is closely paralleled by the similar representations of Ramesses II in his great Abydos inscription, with the sole difference that his father is stated to have remained as co-regent on the throne, unquote. Here then, as in the Bogas Kui documents, we find suspicious counterparts in the priestly writings. In spite of these and other even stronger indications to be noticed later, that the priestly inscriptions of Egypt, Babylonia, and Syria are, quote, no historical documents, unquote, and cannot be relied upon, it is concluded from their evidence that Duzrata of Mitanni was, as Professor Hogarth says, quote, overcome by the Hittite king Subililuima, there's that word again, who, according to the Amarna tablets, can have been nothing more than a name invented by Duzrata. The story told by the priests upon the Bogas Kui tablets is that Duzrata was murdered by his own son, who then fled to the Hittite king for protection. Sibilu Liuma is said to have married his daughter to the Mitannian prince and to have placed both of them upon the Mitannian throne under his own protection. Since the Amarna tablets give reason to believe, as I shall now explain, that Sibilu Liuma was only a name assumed by Dusrata and afterwards copied by the priests when they concocted the story of a Hittite king of the time of that name, all that the Bogaz Kui documents tell of the murder of Dusrata and the Hittite rule of Mit- in Mitanni must have been invented by the priests, who in all probability were themselves the murderers of Dusrata. Okay, there you go. So these priests spanned the entire territory, it appears, from Egypt all the way up to uh, the Hittite kingdom, the land of the Hittites. Chapter 14. Dusrata's assumed names. According to Dr. Hall, Sibilu Liuma, king of the Hittites, had taken certain lands from Dusrata shortly before the death of Amenhotep III. Upon the Bogas Kui tablets, Sibilu Liuma is made to say, quote, On account of the king Dusrata's disobedience, I have plundered all these lands in one year and brought them to Kata, which is the land of the Hittites, from the mountain Niblani, from the Euphrates have I made them my territory, unquote. Dr. Hall, commenting upon that letter, says, quote, The death of Hamenhotep III now probably occurred. When messengers from Egypt came to him with the news of the accession of Amenhotep IV, Sibiluliuma sent with an ill grace a somewhat surly letter of congratulations to the new king of Egypt, unquote. Although Dr. Hall concludes that Dizrata had suffered heavy losses at Sibiluliuma's hands shortly before the accession of Amhotep IV, Dizrata writes to that king and to his mother about that time as if nothing had happened. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there have been several wars that never happened. They've just been reported by the kosher press. 
To Amenhotep he writes saying how he had loved his father and how he had fasted and mourned when he received the news of his death. He begins this letter with the words, quote, I am at peace, unquote. To Queen T he writes, quote, To the princess of the land of Egypt, thus Duzrada king of Mitanni, I am at peace, unquote. Would he have done so if a large part of his empire had just been conquered and occupied by the enemy? Before explaining my reasons for believing that the name Sibelu Liuma was invented by Dusrata and that no Hittite king of that name ever existed, and also to support to support them, uh, something's missing here. Oh, okay. It looks like a new paragraph, but it's not. And to support them, Dusrata might have playfully accused Amenhotep of being lazy but that a Hittite king should have done so is most unlikely. That Sibeliuliuma, if a Hittite king, as he is believed to have been, could have been an, on affectionate and intimate terms with the Egyptian king, when according to Dr. Hall, the Hittites had attacked the Egyptian possessions in Palestine about that time, and had conquered a large part of Dizrata's country, which the Egyptian king might well have re- resented upon his father-in-law's behalf, seems impossible. Yet, if Sibelu Liuma had been really a Hittite king, that must have been the case. The impossibility of this proves to my mind that Sibelu Liuma was no Hittite and can only have been Dusrata of Mitanni under an assumed name. Maybe the priest invented that name. Hard to say. Uh, I'm not aware of any historical documents that contain such a name. The constant confusion in Ribadi's letters when referring to the king of the Hittites and Dusrata, taken in connection with the fact that Dusrata had taken possession of Hittite cities and had called himself the chief of the Hittites, is strong evidence that Dusrata was the king of the Hittites mentioned in those letters, or had, had conquered them, quote-unquote king of the Hittites. That the king of the Hittites is shown by the tablets to have fought on the side of the Israelites against the Canaanites, proved that he could not have been a Hittite, and can only have been Dusrata, who undoubtedly helped Joshua to conquer the Canaanites of Phoenicia. Of course, nothing like this has ever been reported by secular historians that Joshua had an ally of Aramean descent helping him against the Canaanites. Uh, I had never heard anything like this before until reading the work of uh, Bristol. But apparently this is actually what happened. And it would be interesting to find out you know, who, uh, what the biblical name is of Dizrata. In any case, let's continue. I'm now on page 96. That Oh, sorry, I just read this. Finally, in face of the letter from Dusrata to his nephew Amenhotep IV, Sibeluliuma, the pretended Hittite king and his so-called great Hittite empire, disappear. Now, this is very interesting because virtually all archaeologists ascribe a great empire to the Hittites. And maybe they were just a, a small Hittite being mis- uh, empire being mistaken for... Mitanni, or vice versa rather. Small uh, Hittite empire whom they mistake as, as Mitanni. Finally, in face of the letter from Dusrata to his nephew, oh sorry, I just read that. 
Any reader who is convinced by my arguments will realize that the contemporary priests, with their lies... Priests lie? Really? With their lies, which are half the truth, and therefore difficult to detect, have successfully befogged ancient history, and will appreciate the irony of the fact that the translators, though ignoring Dusrata's claim to victory over the Hittites... Hail him when calling himself Sibiliuma as a great Hittite king. Yeah, that, that should have been obvious that there was too much confusion and they should have uh, taken another angle on the story. Okay. Okay, now oh, there is a problem here. Sorry, folks. Oh, the print version, I don't know if this is corrected in the Oh my, in the uh, online version, I'm reading from the beginning of chapter 14 starts on page 74, and the next page is 96, so let me back up what's going on here. It looks like, okay, I see what's happening. Okay, pages, I have to go to the end. Good thing I noticed this. Okay. At the end of the book, we have page 75. And going from right to left through the book, we come to page 96, which I just read, thinking it was page 75. So I'm not sure if the online version was corrected or not. But this copy of the book that I have, page 75, is at the end of the book and going left to right, we come to page 96. So everything I just read was, uh, although it seemed like it fit, that's why I was wondering why a new paragraph had started after the comma, (laughs) right? So at the end of page 74, which is chapter 14, there's a comma. So let me read that again and then go to the end of the book and start reading from right to left. Before explaining my reasons for believing that the name Sibiluliuma was invented by Dusrata, and that no Hittite king of that name ever existed, and also to support them, comma, now page 75, I hope to prove that Dusrata's invented other names as well, either playfully or to disguise the fact that he had written certain letters. Dusrata's assumed names have, I firmly believe, grievously misled translators. Some of his letters to the Egyptian kings, perhaps all of them, passed through Palestine, where they might have been waylaid by the Canaanites against whom Dusrata was evidently plotting with the Egyptian king. To write under the names, and in some kind of artificial dialect, as Dusrata did, and Amenhotep, as we shall see, also did, ah, secret code, <laughs> right? That's not uncommon also did in writing to Dizrata may well have been from motives of secrecy. Several letters found at Tel El Amarna, ostensibly from someone calling himself Dazru, are almost certainly from Dizrata. Professor Weber says of Dazru, quote, about the writer who is only mentioned in his own letters, nothing is known. <laughs> Although he uses the same servile expressions of devotion to Amenhotep, as do the Canaanitish rulers, Dazru cannot have been one of those rulers, for instead of the lamentations and prayers for help with which their letters are filled, his letters express 
perfect satisfaction with the affairs in Palestine, whereas we know the Israelites were conquering the Canaanite cities. Wow. Dazru is Dizrata under a fictitious name, and the Canaanites didn't suspect. Dazru writes, quote, At the feet of my lord, the king, seven times and seven times I fall. All the king my lord does to this land is good in the highest, highest degree. Talk about obeisance here. Dazru writes again, quote, To the king, my lord, my son, Eshiwen, has spoken Dazru, the king's true servant. At the feet of the king, my lord, seven times and seven times I fall down, blah, blah, blah. What has said the king, my lord, I have heard. In another letter, Dazru says, quote, All that the king has said, I have understood. Of all Amenhotep's correspondence, the only one who could have understood what the king, Egyptian king was doing was obviously his relation and friend Dusrata, who, as the tablets prove, had to turn the page to the left, from left to right here now, helped the, uh, right to left is actually the way I'm turning the pages now, helped the Israelites to conquer Phoenicia. Surely Dazru was Dusrata. Another mysterious correspondent of the Egyptian kings, whom I suspect of being Dizrata, writes from the city of Kadesh, which Major Condor calls the capital of the southern Hittites. The writer calls himself Edagama, or Itakama, which name is said to mean Victorious Lord. He tells the Egyptian king that the Haberi, namely the Israelites, have taken some of the Egyptian cities in Palestine it offers to go and drive them out. Now who but Dusrata was strong enough to think of driving out the Israelites? To even think of it. Certainly not any of the Canaanites. Certainly none of the Canaanitish rulers at any rate unsupported. Ribadi, seeming the most, seemingly the most powerful of those rulers, again he is the king of the Sidonians or Phoenicians, dared not attempt it alone. He tells the Egyptian king that if one other ruler would join him, he would go and drive out the Israelites. My belief is that Dusrata, having heard that the Israelites were taking the cities of northern Palestine, wrote to Amenhotep, calling himself Edagama, and offering to turn the invaders out, not understanding at that time, as he did later, that the Egyptian king wished the Israelites to take possession of their promised land. <clears throat> Very good. Edagama was, according to Major Condor, a Hittite king, while Dr. Hall conjectures that he was the son of Dizrata's brother and was intriguing with Dizrata's brother against Dizrata with the Hittite king. Well, yeah, with all this fictitious history and, and assumed names, code names, this stuff would be really hard to figure out. Kudos to uh, Bristol for figuring all this out. The fact that Edagama writes as if on friendly terms with the Egyptian king, who was Dizrata's ally, makes this conjecture improbable. So uh, the Egyptologists have just been confused by code language and by priestly lies. Much more important, however, is the letter from Tarkundarush. Again, a lot of these names sound Indo-Aryan. Tarkundarush who I claim was also Dizrata under an assumed name. If the word Tarkun meant chief, 
as Major Condor and other authorities think it does, Tarkundarush probably meant Chief Dusrata. If, as Professor Sace thinks, there was some connection between the words Tarkun and Subi, S-U-B-B-I, the same reason, whatever it was, which prompted Dusrata to give himself the name Tarkundarush, must have also prompted him to call himself Subili Liuma. I hope that's the last <laughs> instance of that name. Okay, folks, I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, I need to get a drink, and uh, let's play some good old-fashioned music here. And I will be back. It looks like we're going to get through the book today. And we'll see what we have on, on display here today. Oh, this won't open. Here we go. Here's a song I wrote called Jealous Heart. Turn the volume down. Would it be too much to 
got a jealous heart Such a jealous heart Tearing me apart Is this jealous heart I've got a jealous heart Such a jealous heart You've got to do your part To soothe this jealous heart Welcome back. I am now on page 77, uh, which uh, the chapter is entitled Dusrata's Assumed Names. About the letter of Tarkundarush, Professor Petrie writes, quote, An early letter to Amenhotep III cannot be regularly translated, as it is in an unknown language. From the personal name, it would seem that the sender was a Hittite king, the word Tarkun being well known as the name of the king Tarkudime of the Silver Boss. From the letter can be gleaned the following. Tarkundarush sends Irshapa for a daughter of Nimutria and sends Ashuka of gold. There must be a lot of gold. <laughs> and will send a chariot, etc., Prince of the Hatti on the mountains of Igaid sends Ashuka weighing twenty manes, three lakh of ivory, etc. Okay, I'm sure the Egyptologists know exactly what these amounts uh, represent. Was ever so crude a proposal for a great king's daughter made? It sounds like a purchase. No tributary prince could have written that letter to the king of Egypt, and according to the Amarna tablets, the Hittites were tributary at that time to Egypt. Igayid, mentioned by Tarkundarush, was, Professor Petrie thinks, the country of Lebanon. And uh, Lebanon bounded the land of the Hittites described in the Bible. That Tarkundarush wrote from the land of the Hittites is probable, but that he was no Hittite is shown by the way in which he writes to Amenhotep III. Even in Major Condor's more convincing version of the letter, in which instead of demanding Amenhotep's daughter, Tarkundarish says that he is sending a woman to Amenhotep, who was to be Queen T's servant. He begins his letter as only an equal to the Egyptian king could have done, with none of the servile protestations of the tributary rulers of Palestine, such as those of the ruler of Jerusalem, who writes, quote, At the feet of my lord, thus Adonazedek, at the feet of my lord of the king, seven times and seven times I bow. Unquote. Very differently does Tarkundarish begin his letter. He writes, quote, This letter to Nimutria, Amenhotep III, the great king, the king of Egypt, from Tarkundara, the king of Arzapi, he says, I am at peace, may there be peace to my abodes, to my wives, to my sons, to all my chiefs, to the soldiers, and to my cavalry, which are in my power, to the whole of my hands, unquote, which does not sound like a nation in 
in turmoil and tribute. After which egotistical preamble, Tarkundra says, quote, May there be... Oh, sorry, I've got to turn the page in the other direction. May there be peace to thy abodes, to thy wives, to thy sons, to thy chiefs, etc. That the most imperial of all the Egyptian kings, as Dr. Hall calls Amenhotep III, was ever so addressed by a Hittite seems impossible. Yet it has been taken for granted that Tarkundarush, the writer of that letter, was a Hittite prince. And Major Condor tells us why. Writing about that letter and one other letter written in the same language, he says, quote, The Berlin Authority, Dr. Hugo Winkler, decided that those letters were in the Hittite language. His reason being that one of them is written by a prince who is named Tarkundarush and who called himself the Prince of the Hittites, unquote. This reason evidently contented Major Condor. He says, quote, The name Tarkundarush is enough to show that the writer was a Hittite, unquote. Enough it might be if the other Hittite letter had not been written by Dusrata of Mitanni, that these two letters should be considered Hittite because someone calling himself the Prince of the Hittites wrote one of them any more than Mitannian because Dusrata of Mitanni wrote the other is unreasonable. Well, I guess... Uh, again, when you're using fictitious names and you're dealing with priestly lies, uh, any scholar might be confused. While Professor Winkler thinks those letters were in the Hittite language, Professor Weber says that the one written by Dusrata is in the Mitanische Sprache, Mitanische Sprache, or the language of the Mitanni. In which case, as both letters are admittedly in the same language... Tarkundarush must have also written in the Mitanische Sprache. Major Condor writes, quote, The existence of two letters in the Tel El Amarna collection, written in quite a different language to that of the remainder, is undisputed. The longest of them is by Dusrata, the Minayan king. He, uh, he spells it M-I-N-N-Y-A-N, Minayan king. The other letter from Tarkundara the Hittite prince of Rezepa, or Arzapi, in the land of Itikai, north of the Palmyra, is apparently in the same language, which is no doubt Hittite, unquote. Major Condor then remarks, and this agrees with the fact that Dizrata calls himself the Hittite suzerain, unquote. Or he, he apparently conquered the Hittites, and they were under his domain rather than vice versa. Why? Because Dizrata calls himself a Hittite suzerain, a Hittite prince should have written in Dizrata's language. The Mitanni Sprache is difficult to see. Although Major Condor says that the language of the two letters was no doubt Hittite, he says, speaking of the letter from Tarkundarush, which he and Professor Winkler decided was in the Hittite language, that the quote, the pronouns, particles, and forms of the verb are also the same as those of the Minian language of Dizrata and that both the letters begin in Dizrata's language and continue in that language mixed up with some other. Okay, so it's code. Mrs. Sidney Bristow was say, saying that he was simply writing in code because many of his letters would be passing through Canaanite territory. Why that language has been accepted as unquestionably Hittite when in all essentials it was Mitannian is inexplicable. According to Professor Weber... 
The same mixed language was used by Amenhotep III in a letter addressed to Tarkundarush, that that language was some kind of code arranged between the kings of Mitanni and Egypt seems much more probable than that it was the Hittite language. That would make the Hittite language very much more difficult to decipher, right? The fact that those two letters are one of the clues to the so-called Hittite language helps us to show on what a conjectural basis the Hittite Empire rests. As at the time the letter of Tarkundarush was written, Subiliulma, according to Dr. Hall and other writers, was the great king of the Hittites. Tarkundarush's kingdom can only have been, as Dr. Hall remarks, a subsidiary kingdom. That he could have addressed the Egyptian king as an equal is improbable. That he could have demanded a daughter of Mount Hope, the Magnificent, in the manner quoted above is out of the question. The strongest proof that the Tarkundarush was an assumed name of Dizrata of Mitanni is given by, by Amenhotep III in a letter written in the same mixed language as that of Tarkundarush and which, as it was found at Tel El Amarna, was probably the re- replica of one sent to Syria. The Egyptian king writes to Tarkundarush, Tarkundaraba, according to Professor Knutsen, whose translation I give now, quote, Thus has Nimutria, the great king of Egypt, spoken to Tarkundaraba, the king of Arzawa. To you have I sent my messenger, Irsapa, that he may say, For thy daughter, who is to be the wife of my son, have I sent oil for the head. Unquote. All right, so certainly no Hittite king would have done this. Certainly no Canaanite king would have stated that I give my daughter <laughs> to you. So, again, Bristow has got this right, and the experts are wrong. Page 80. Dr. Weber surmises that the oil was for some anointing ceremony. Probably as the future wife of the heir to the Egyptian throne, the princess was to go through some ceremony. If, as I believe, Amenhotep III had adopted the Hebrew religion, this is not strange. I wouldn't go that far. He just be uh, he became a monotheist. He certainly would have known of the Hebrew religion because the Hebrews were there for such a long time. The Israelites were there. Quote, the holy consecrating oil mentioned in the book of Exodus 30.22 for our Fenton's version might well be meant. That oil, be it remarked, was never to be used upon strangers or foreigners, which the Hittites were considered by the Shemitic race. Now, since according to the translators of the tablets, the Hittites shortly after, if not before, Amenhotep III's death, attacked the Egyptian domains. A Hittite marriage could hardly have been desirable for the future king of Egypt. Considering, too, that according to the same authorities, the Hittites were on hostile terms with Dizrata, whose daughter was married to Amenhotep's son, about that time, it is not likely that Amenhotep would have tried to arrange a Hittite marriage for his son. That Amenhotep's son had only one wife is generally admitted, and that that wife was Dusrata's daughter is amply proved by Dusrata's own letters, as well as by the inventory of his daughter's wedding outfit mentioned before. The following letters prove that Dusrata's daughter went to Egypt as the wife of Amenhotep IV, and that Dusrata's sister was the wife of Amenhotep III. 
Tuzrata writes to Amenhotep III, quote, With me it is well, with you may it be well, with thy house, my sister, and your other wives, with your children may it be well, unquote. He goes on to say that Amenhotep had sent a messenger to ask for his, Tuzrata's daughter, to be the queen of Egypt. So, as Bristow is arguing, the very nature of these letters prove that it's not a Canaanite chieftain writing in this manner. Continuing, as Queen T was certainly the queen of Egypt at that time, ruling both the king and the court, according to Dr. Hall, it could only have been to the could oh, it could only have been to be the future queen of Egypt as wife of the future king that Duzrata's daughter was asked for. In a letter to Amenhotep IV, after Amenhotep III's death, Duzrata says, quote, When you favored a daughter and sent for her, and as Amenhotep III, your father knew her, I rejoiced, being exceeding glad. And he said, quote, My brother, is it not thy wish thus to give the handmaid, unquote? In a letter to Queen T, Dizrata says, quote, To the princess of the land of Egypt, thus Dizrata of Mitanni, I am at peace. Peace be to thee, peace to thy son, peace to be to Tarukipa, thy daughter-in-law. To thy land and to all that is thine be much, much peace. Thou hast known how I have loved Amenhopus III, thy husband, and Amenhopus III, because he was thy husband, how he loved me. Where the name Amenhofus appears in Major Condor's translations, the original name is Nimuria, N-I-M-M-U-R-I-A, or Nimutria, and where Amenhofus IV appears, it is Nafuria in the original. These letters prove that Dizrata's daughter went to Egypt as the wife of Amenhotep IV, and that Dizrata's sister was the wife of Amenhotep III can hardly be doubted. Amenhotep III could hardly have been said to have loved Dizrata for Queen T's sake unless he was her brother. Amenhotep III's mother had been an aunt of Dizrata. With all these marriage connections with the Mitanni, how could Amenhotep have tried to arrange a marriage for his son with Dizrata's enemies, the Hittites? Even if unsuspicious of the fact that they were on the point of attacking his possessions in Palestine, Yet, if we believe, as the translators believe, that Amenhotep's letter to Tarkundarush was written to a Hittite prince, we must also believe that he tried to arrange a marriage for his son with a Hittite princess. The only possible explanation of this mysterious letter is, to my mind, that it was written by Dizrata under the name of Tarkundarush. This theory is supported by several facts. According to Professor Weber... Tarkundarush is called in the Bogaz Kui documents Tarkundime, king of the town of Mitanni. The professor remarks that it is only the Hittites who speak of countries as towns. If, as I claim, the writers of those so-called Hittite archives were the priests of, of Syria and Babylonia, any absurdity found in them is explained. That the writers called Tarkundarush king of Mitanni while at other times they give the impression that he was a Hittite prince is interesting evidence upon my side. 
It shows, too, the inconsistency of the Bogaskui documents which give Sibili Liuma as the Hittite ruler who finally took Mitanni and say nothing about Tarkundarish having done so, although he is called the king of the city of Metan. Professor Glutzen writes, quote, Tarkundeme, king of the land of the city of Metan, his language adapted Hittite. The expression city Metan never used in the Amarna tablets, but only in the Hittite excavations, unquote. Another reason exists for concluding that Tarkundarish was Dusrata, king of Armenia and Mitanni. Upon the electrotype copy to be seen in the British Museum, of the boss, now what does she mean, electrotype? The electrotype copy of the boss of Tarkondemos, the king, whose name in the boss is a symbol, uh, the uh, signet uh, impression, whose name is taken to be the same as Tarkundarish by Professor Sace and other experts, Tarkondemos, is said to be the king of Erme, E-R-M-E. The name Erme evidently meaning Armenia, over which Dizrata ruled, for Armenia was called Armenia by the Arabs and Ermenistan by the Persians. So, I was asked earlier today in an email, who are these Iranians, who are these uh, Kazakhstanis, who are these Afghanistanis, etc., and it's pretty obvious. And uh, the author uh, in his letter wrote that uh, it turns out that the name Kurd actually is Kurdami, something like that. He gave me the original version of the name. And they, and they, they signified themselves as the descendants of Abraham through Keturah which goes along with the the presentation we did a while ago about the descendants of Keturah and Abraham being Mitanni, or Midianites. And so in his uh, letter to me, he said that they were Midianites, that the Kurds described themselves as Midianites. That makes them sons of Keturah. So where did I leave off here? Okay. So all of this research we've been doing about the area of Mesopotamia and the descendants of all of the Adamic tribes that inhabited that land. And if you go actually into these countries even today, you will see that the vast majority of these people still look white. They still look very much Aryan, although with slightly darker skin because they're you know out in the sunshine all the time. And, uh, but nevertheless, uh, even the Iranians, they have a lot of Aryan-looking women in Iran. So let's continue. The Persians definitely were, and probably still are for the most part. Let's continue. Let me, let me see. Yeah, the name, let me repeat this. The name Irma evidently meant Armenia, over which Dizrata ruled, for Armenia was called Armenia, by the Arabs and Ermenistan by the Persians. Kitto's Encyclopedia, Volume 1, page 220. On the same page, we read that Armenia's most probable entomology is that of Bokhart, namely, that it was originally Hebrew given Harmini, Mount Mini, the highland of Minyas, 
or according to Wall in his work on Asia, the heavenly mountain, i.e. Ararat. For Mino in Zend and M-Y-N-O-M-Y-M-I in Parsi signify heaven, heavenly or very high, <laughs> very high up there. The word Irma therefore not only connects Tarkundarush with Duzrata's country of Armenia, but also with his people, the Minyans or Mini, or as we've been saying, Mitanni. The Tarkundarush was called both king of Mitanni and of Armenia, that he writes in the same language as Duzrata, that he writes to Amenhotep III as an equal, that his daughter is asked for by Amenhotep III to be the future queen of Egypt, and the fact that the future queen of Egypt was Dusrata's daughter is overwhelming evidence that Tarkundarush was Dusrata under an assumed name. Very good. And there's a footnote here. According to Professor Sace and Dr. Hall, Tarkundarush was the king of Azawa in Cilicia. Okay, we're talking about modern Turkey. This, as Tarkundarush, was really Dusrata, helps to show that Dusrata reigned in Asia Minor. Very good. Okay, we have about half an hour left, and I'm on page 83, turning the book from left to right, and I think we have about 13 pages left. We should be able to get through this. Oh no, it's uh, 96... Yeah, about 13 pages left. We should be able to get through this whole document. So here we go. Chapter 15, <laughs> page 83. Uh, Dusrata's name for Queen T. Before giving my reasons for believing that Sibili Luma was only another name for Dusrata, invented by himself and chosen in later times by the plagiarizing priests for their fictitious king of the Hittites, I hope to show that Dusrata also invented a name for his sister Queen T of Egypt, and by doing so, threw a cloud over her identity, as he has done over his own. So that the uh, Canaanites, who might uh, get their hands on these letters, wouldn't know anything about it, and uh, maybe set an ambush for her while she was traveling. You never know. That name was Gilukipa. G-I-L-U-K-H-I-P-A. Gilukipa which, according to Major Condor, meant possessing glory. It puzzled Major Condor and made him doubt that T was Dizrata's sister, while it has convinced other writers that she was not a Mitannian princess at all. Major Condor writes, quote, Perhaps T was Dizrata's cousin. She was certainly of royal birth and is represented as a very fair, very fair, meaning white, of course, but with dark hair, unquote. As Solomon. And it seems clear from this letter that T, the Queen of Egypt, was related to Dizrata, but it is not clear that she was his sister. Gilukipa, the sister whom he names it is, is known from Egyptian sources to have been the daughter of Sutarna, Dizrata's father. And she came to Egypt with 317 ladies in her train. Unquote. Now that's royalty. The letter referred to as showing that T was related to Dusrata is written to T by Dusrata. He says, quote, Two princes of the land of Egypt, thus Dusrata, king of Mitanni, I am at peace, peace be to thee, peace be to thy son, 
Peace be to Tadokipa, thy daughter-in-law. Thou hast known of me how I loved Amenhopus III, thy husband, and Amenhopus III, because he was thy husband, how he loved me. And Amenhopus III, because he was thy husband, sent messages to me. Not much contained in there, but hey, we, we all we all love each other. <laughs> Page 84. No wonder that Major Condor gathers from this letter that T was related to Desrata. If it was avowedly for her sake that Amenhotep sent him messages and loved him, T must have certainly been a near relation of Desrata. Could she have been anything less than a sister? Dr. Hall, however, concludes that T was not Desrata's sister. He says that Amenhotep III, in marrying T, had not followed the example of his father, who had married a Mitannian princess. So he knows that at least his father married a Mitannian princess. He writes, the idea that she, that is T, was of Mitannian origin is now known to be erroneous, he says. Her father was attached to the court of the king's master of the horse and captain of chariotry. He married the court lady Tui, T-U-I-U, and their daughter T, T-I-I, attracted the attention of the young king who married her, unquote. So that is Dr. Hall's interpretation. And he continues, But though Amenhotep did not imitate his father in taking to wife an entirely foreign princess, yet he admitted a daughter of Mitanni to his harem as an inferior wife. This was Gilukipa, daughter of Shutarna, who was probably Amenhotep's maternal uncle. So, now I'm getting clearer on who the Mitanni were, because it's always been a mystery as to who they were. We're finding out that they were number one, Armenians, number two, Hebrews, and number three, Syrians, Aramaeans. That's who the Mitanni were. So they were the sub-tribe of the, the Aramaeans, or identified with them. So I'm thinking it's more likely that they are a subtribe of the Arameans, but he's Dusrata is being uh, announced as the king of the Armenians. So it's quite possible that the Mitanni and the Armenians plus the Syrians are the Mitanni and not some far-flung group that took over the territory and nobody knows who they are. Because I've been having trouble finding out who the Mitanni are. So this document is explaining very well that Desrati, as king of the Armenians and king of the uh, Mitanni, is that ruler and that those, those two people are very closely related and they're probably Syrians. So they're either two different names for the same people or one is a subtribe of the other. So let's continue. That the 317 ladies brought to Egypt, as Major, Major Condor and other writers tell us, by Gilukipa, Gilukipa, would have been a formidable suite for an inferior wife to introduce into Amenhotep's harem seems a natural reflection at this point. Yeah, okay, some some sub, uh, sub-tribal uh, cousin has a an entourage of 317 ladies? That's just counting the women, folks. Not the army that had to be protecting them. Dr. Hall continues, quote, 
but there was no possibility of the Mitannian obtaining any real power at the Egyptian court. T ruled not only at the, not the court, but the king also. Oh, really? That's interesting. We'll see what uh, Bristol has to say about this. And she says, T must indeed have been sure of her own power to allow that influx of Mitannian ladies, not to mention Gilukipa herself. Dr. Hall goes on, quote, We may, if we please, see in the union of Amenhotep III with T evidence of a romantic element in the king's character, <laughs> but the marriage had a political effect also. It enabled Amenhotep III to keep the foreign princess, oh, princes, plural here, at a more respectful distance than if he had taken the Mitannian princess as his chief wife. So that is his assumption. It was T, however, who, according to Dr. Hall, was not a Mitannian princess, who is shown by Dusrata's letters to have been the bond of friendship between the Mitannians and the Egyptian king. Dr. Hall must have overlooked the following letters. In one of them, Dusrata says to Queen T, and we quote, And Amenhotep III, because he was thy husband, sent messages to me. Yeah, there it's spelled out, isn't it? In another letter, Dusrata says to Amenhotep IV, quote, With you, with you, your mother T, with my daughter Tarukipa, your wife, may it well be. From the days of my youth, Nemuria, Amenhotep III, your father wrote to me a friendship, all the words of your father which he wrote to me, T, the distinguished wife of Nemuria, the loved one, your mother, she knew them all. Ask T, your mother, in regard to all those things which your father negotiated with me, unquote. I mean, this is unquestionably uh, proof, evidence that uh, Bristow is right and the rest of the scholarship simply misunderstands. In another letter given by Major Condor, Dusrata writes to Amenhotep IV soon after his father's death, the, quote, the great king of Mitanni, thy kinsman, kinsman, right? Well, the, the Hebrews, the Shemites, were a kinsman of the Hamites. And since, since the kings of Egypt were marrying Hebrew princesses, they would be kinsmen-in-law, right, at the very least. Okay. So, yeah, let me start this over. The great king of Mitanni, thy kinsman, who loves thee, I am at peace. To the lady T, to Tadekubi, Tadukipa, my daughter, thy wife, be peace. Amenhotep, thy father, has sent to me. Your mother knew all the messages he addressed to me, and when Amenhotep III was obliged to be taken to his fate, and they told me I tore my cheeks and I mourned, I took no food or water, and I was grieved. I said, Let me perish myself from the earth, and that he loved me, God knows, and he was loved. I say thus, Amenhotep the fourth is my brother, who and certainly his brother-in-law now, who actually, son-in-law. I say thus, Amenhotep the fourth is my brother, whom we shall love in our hearts, the son of Amenhotep the third, more than his father, because of T, his mother, and T was his sister. 
Why, unless T was Disrata's sister, did Amenhotep send messages to Disrata for her sake? Why, unless T was Disrata's sister, should Disrata have loved her son more than her husband for her sake? Professor Winkler gives a letter in which Disrata says, quote, All the words which I discussed with your father, your mother knows them all. No one else knows them. All right, so it is family-privileged information. Where then was Gulakipa? Why was she, the Mitannian princess, Dizrata's sister, left out in this correspondence? My conviction is that T and Gulukipa were the same person, a possibility which does not seem to have occurred to the translators. From the scarabs upon which the priests announced that Amenhotep III named Gulukipa daughter of Sutarna of Naharain, Dusrata's father, and at that time, T was queen of Egypt. Also from certain mummies, referred to later, labeled by the priests with the suspiciously comic names of Jui and Tui, and said by them to be T's father and mother, it has been concluded that T was not Dusrata's sister. That T was not Dusrata's sister is also the opinion of Sir Ernest Budge, and we're talking about some really famous archaeologists here, he says that Amenhotep married a daughter of Shutarna of Mitanni, and also married Gulukipa, a sister of Dusrata of Mitanni, who he says arrived in Egypt with 317 ladies. So again, we're seeing the story being repeated with different names. It's obvious now that these are simply different names for the sister and daughter of Dusrata. As Shutarna, king of Mitanni, was Dizrata's father, Shutarna's daughter, who, according to Sir Ernest Bunch, married Amenhotep, must have been Dizrata's sister, as well as Gulukipa. Amenhotep III must then, according to Sir Ernest Bunch, have been married to two, oh, sorry, have married two of Dizrata's sisters, Gilukipa and another, which would be a natural assumption, not knowing that they were actually using code names. Considering that, as the following letter shows, Mitannian princesses were not easily won by the Egyptian kings, it seems unlikely that two of Dizrata's sisters went to Egypt to marry the same king. Dizrata writes to Amenhotep IV after Amenhotep III's death. He first describes how Tutmes IV, Manabiria, had to send five or six times to Mitanni to ask for a wife before she was allowed to go to Egypt. That princess was Dizrata's aunt. He then says, quote, Formerly, when Demuria, that is Amenhotep III, thy father sent to ask for my sister, three and four times he asked, but was not given her. When Demuria, thy father, was sent, sent to me for my daughter, I said, before his messengers I spoke, I will certainly give her. Of course, uh, their relationship had been firmly established by then. In this detailed account of the way in which Egyptian requests for Mitannian princesses had been received, Dizrata only speaks of, the, of an aunt, one sister, and a daughter. Why, if, as Sir Ernest Budge thinks, two of Dizrata's sisters went to Egypt as wives to Amenhotep III, does Dizrata only mention one of them? Now, this is very interesting because it proves that there was a close affinity between the kings of Egypt and the Hebrew women 
at that time, even after the Exodus. So, this is probably news to most Egyptologists that they were marrying Hebrew women, even at this late date. Okay, so I'm on page 87 now, and I'm certainly not going to get to the end of the document, because I've got uh, at least nine pages left. So we'll uh, conclude this another time with, uh, with uh, additional information about the Amarna letters, because these Amarna letters are superbly important to understanding the history of Israel and Egypt at this time. Let's continue. This letter indicates that only one Mitannian princess was married to Amenhotep III. My contention is that she was T, who was called Giluhipa, in a letter from Dizrata. My further contention is that that letter proves that this was the case. Dizrata begins the letter, quote, To Neb Matra, Nimuria, my brother, by letter, thus, Tuzrata, king of Mitanni, thy brother, I am at peace, peace be to thee. To Gulukipa, my sister, be peace. Dizrata then describes his victory over the Hittites and says, quote, Now I have sent thee a chariot with two horses, a young man and a young woman of the spoil of the land of the Hittites. I have sent thee as a present to my brother five chariots and five yoke of horses. And as a present to Gulukipa, my sister, I have sent a gold, of gold, a pair of gold earrings, and of gold and goodly stones. The enlightening thing about this letter is that Dizrata never even mentions the great Queen T, for whose sake he and Amenhotep III loved one another, at least not in this letter, for whose sake he was sent messages from Egypt, and whose sake he was to love Amenhotep IV more even than his old friend Amenhotep III, and with whom he was, as his letters prove, to negotiate after her husband's death. T was certainly alive at that time. She is said to have married Amenhotep III early in his reign and to have outlived him. As we have seen, upon the scarabs announcing Gulakipa's marriage, T is said to be the queen of Egypt. Even the priests did not try to hide that fact, nor did they suggest that Gilukipa ever usurped T's position in Egypt. For another scarab tells how the year after this supposed marriage with Gilukupa Amenhotep constructed a great lake in honor of Queen T. Yet, in this important doc letter, Dusrata sends messages and presents to Gilukupa and not one word to T. So he is obviously using two different names for the same person. Considering all the circumstances, this is, I maintain, proof positive that Gilukupa was T under another name. Tuzrata could not possibly have ignored T in that letter. As we have seen, the name Gilukupa meant possessing glory. What more likely than that Tuzrata, who we know could be playful, called his sister T Gilukupa upon this great occasion when she, as a Metanian princess, attained reflected glory through the victory of her brother, the king of Mitanni, over the Hittites. Professor Knudsen's version of this important letter is much the same as Major Condor's. In it, Gilukipa is mentioned twice and T not at all. Like Major Condor, 
Mr. Weagle seems puzzled about Queen T, although he believes her to have been the daughter of the courtiers. Jau and Tau, because these are the names given by the uh, the renegade priests, it says Jau and Tau, or, or Jua and Tua, became the proud parents of the pharaoh, he adds. But she, T, became the, his great queen, was placed on the throne beside him, and received honors which no other queen of the most royal blood had ever received before. It is clear that the king's advisors would never have permitted this had T been but the pretty daughter of a noble of the court. Well, you never know. <laughs> who, who, who was at the head of face that sank or launched a thousand ships, right? Helen of Troy? Her face launched a thousand ships, right? So this, this queen being a Hebrew and an Aryan princess would have been very beautiful. It is clear of the most it is clear that the king's advisers would never have permitted this had T been but the pretty daughter of a noble of the court. There must have been something in her parentage which entitled her to these honors and caused her to be chosen deliberately as queen. And Tua may have had royal blood in her veins and may have been, for instance, the granddaughter of Tutmosis III, to whom she bears some likeness in her face. Queen T is often called royal daughter, as well as royal wife, and it is possible that this is to be taken literally. In a letter sent by Dusrada, king of Mitanni, to Akhenaten, T is called my sister and my mother. In spite of this strong evidence that T was Dusrada's sister, Mr. Weigel still doubts that fact. Even without that letter, which I have not seen the evidence is strong enough, in my opinion, to prove that T was Dizrata's sister. Since, therefore, T was Dizrata's sister, and the story of her parents being courtiers at Amenhotep's court only an invention of the priests, the important question arises, only to be briefly touched upon here, whose were the mummies labeled as Jui and Tui? The inner coffin lids had been removed when they were discovered by Mr. Theodore Davis, probably because the real names of the occupants had been upon them. The linen bandages glued to the bodies had been scratched off, Mr. Davis thinks, by human nails. Objects found with them were strewn about in disorder, and many of them were broken. Evidently, no reverent hands had placed those mummies in the rock tomb, where they were found, yet for some important reason they had been preserved and carefully hidden away, which is very interesting. So, the Egyptian priests preserved the mummies in any case, but in uh, some hidden faraway place. Mr. Davis, tombs of Jua and Tua, remarks upon the extraordinary dignity of the woman's mummy, and by a drawing given of the man's profile we can judge of the commanding face of the supposed Jua. It is much like that of the mummy believed to be Ramses II. My belief is that the mummies are those of Amenhotep, the Magnificent, and Queen T, which had been removed from their original tombs by the priests, who in all probability had murdered Amenhotep IV and his family. Unusually fine alabaster vases found in a tomb are actually inscribed with the names of Amenhotep and Queen T, while in inscriptions 
found there the mummy of the man is called Divine Father, Royal Ornament, and Father of the Lord of the Two Lands. Unquote. Strange titles for even the mocking priest to apply to a courtier. <laughs> Indeed. The accepted opinion is that robbers had disturbed the tomb. If so, they were uncommon ones, for after spending much time in scratching off the mummy wrappings with their nails, they went away leaving behind them a gold and lapis lazuli necklace, a gold plate, and other valuables. I guess the priest didn't need them because they were super rich. According to Professor, and this is something that's really important to include here, that the priests, as the heads of the temple, the pagan temples, would be collecting money for from the traveling merchants that were going through Egypt all the time and paying the price for the prostitutes, for the prostitutes in those temples. So the priests were in fact, uh, what's the term? Uh, not the Johns, uh, John is a customer, but the uh, pimps, the priests were the pimps of the prostitutes, and of course the traveling merchants had to pay the priests, and who knows what they gave to the prostitutes. Hard to say. Anyway, this is how the banking institution began in those, in those days. The priests were the bankers of those days. Let's continue. And, uh, and the, uh, they ran the temple prostitution racket. According to Professor Breston, the names given as Jui and Tui were in the original JWY and TWY. The resemblance between TWY and TII or TEIE is unmistakable. Obviously, as Queen T was the daughter of the king of Mitanni, the father of Dusrata, the mummies of Jui and Tui were not those of her parents, and as T and Gilukipa were the same person, the marriage scarabs of the III was Gilukipa during T's lifetime must also have been a priestly hoax. So the priests went to an enormous extent to destroy the history of this time because they hated the monotheists of this dynasty. And I think we have time for one more paragraph here. As therefore the names, oh, yeah, Jui and Tui were invented. Oh, hold on. Were invented by the priests, as were the names of Hyksos kings and those of Tutmos and Amenhotep, the question invariably occurs, can we believe in any names given in the priestly inscriptions? Can we believe, for instance, in the existence of the three kings called respectively Sakare, Tutankhamun, and Ai, E-Y-E, who are believed to have reigned in succession after Amenhotep IV, but whose united reigns only lasted, according to Professor Breston, about eight years, and whose names do not inspire confidence? That the Egyptian priests had something to hide is certain, the Hebrew religion, the true religion, accompanied by truthful art, had twice reigned in Egypt, first under the Hyksos kings, and secondly under the heretic kings, and my conviction is that the Egyptian priests' great effort after that religion had been abolished was to hide all traces of it and to credit themselves with any writings and customs belonging to the Hebrew religion, which they allowed to remain in Egypt. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition, folks. 
Bye-bye.